Hello and welcome to the Emotion Focus podcast and the world of emotions. This is a series all about emotions, how they work for us, how seemingly sometimes they don't work for us, and how we might better understand that and maybe do something about it. I'm Lou Cooper. I'm your host. I'm based in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And in this series, I'm joined by people from around the globe who have dedicated most of their professional lives to the exploration of emotions. Everything you hear on this series is informed by emotion theory and emotion-focused therapy. This episode is called, I Just Can't Let It Go. I'm going to describe an experience to you that you might have had yourself. You've decided to pay a visit to your parents or your parent, and in the car or on the train or on the bus on the way to see them, your stomach starts to kind of clench up. You can feel it. It's really uncomfortable. It's a feeling that you know, and it really frustrates you because you're going to see your parents, you've made that decision, and yet this happens on the way to see that there's something going on. Or it maybe you're actually arrived at their house and your mother or your father or maybe a sibling kind of looks at you in a certain way and your response to that, your reaction to that is that you have to leave the room because it just makes you see red. Or maybe you're talking to a friend and they mention an ex-partner of yours a partner that you separated from maybe over 10 or 20 years ago, and yet the mention of their name just, again, makes you feel really angry or upset or whatever it may be that you're aware that you respond to this and you're just not able to let this go. What's going on here? To answer that question, I'm joined by Dr. Antonio Pasqualioni, who's a clinical psychologist and full professor at the University of Windsor in Canada. He's an honorary research professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland and has won several international awards for his research. Antonio has co-authored two editions of the book Emotion-Focused Therapy for Complex Trauma with Sandra Pavio and has another book on the way called The Principles of Emotional Change, coming out quite sure when, but hopefully shortly. Antonio gave a TED Talk in 2019 on how to get over the end of a relationship, and that TED Talk has had over 5.5 million viewers. So I'd love to welcome you here, Antonio. It's lovely to have a bit of a TED Talk star on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So you would have heard me describe those scenarios. And the question is, you know, what is happening here for us or for anyone who has that kind of experience? They're wanting to let something go, let that anger or that sadness or whatever the emotion is attached to these people in their lives and they're not able to. What, what's happening? Well, I think a number of things are probably happening. There's several different ways people could end up in that sort of stuck kind of thing where they find this, you know, there are flashbacks. There's also being stuck in the same old place. But I think one thing that all those scenarios have in common is there's some sort of cue, right? 
the way you presented them, the person is sort of mystified a little bit by what this means or why I'm feeling this way or why I only feel this, right? So those are different pieces. And I guess the first thing I would say is emotion is a densely packaged unit of information. If I was going to give a, a quick definition, that's what it is. It's a unit of information. It tells you something. And so you're organized a certain way to uh, prime the pump, so to speak. So you start looking for certain features that maybe kind of kind of confirm your your fear. You you know you, you have a physiological response, and people start responding emotionally often before they even know why they're responding. Right. So the example of somebody looking at you a certain way, uh, and it's an old relationship, and it sort of cues this, uh, let's say, defensiveness or some sense of anger. Or So that's one thing. I think the other thing is people can be stuck in the same place, right? So there are things like rumination, which are being stuck somewhere but never really getting into it. So I think that's how, how I, would, I would start to, to answer your question. So all these scenarios are involving someone else, yeah? Mm-hmm. And significant people in their lives. Yeah. That there's something that is is left over. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly a difference between a current interpersonal difficulty, the trouble you have with somebody, maybe it's a maybe it's a coworker or it could be your spouse or it could be, you know, a fight that we're in a fight, we're having an argument, but we're talking about people who are significant and yet you could have current interpersonal difficulties. Those things need to get resolved or mediated. But then there are these things, as you're pointing out, right, which are like old stories, right? You know, how do you operationalize that? What is that really? And, and I think that's tricky. But I, I think in one of the studies that, that Les Greenberg started, was doing, you know, the criteria for um, unfinished business was something like it happened over two years ago, right? And here you get things like, I just can't let go of that time, right? Or I just can't forgive so-and-so for whatever. So it's not the current interpersonal problem, it's the past issue, right? Which, of course, casts a really long shadow and, and colors your, your interactions in the, in the present. But it's unfinished business from the past. So it's from the past. And I guess how I've described it here, the person is aware that, there's, you know, it's kind of clear that there's some kind of connection here. This is happening because I'm about to see these people. I always get this. I always feel like this. You know, it's these people that make me feel like this. But sometimes maybe that feeling like that (laughs) happens when the connection isn't so obvious. Right. This is that idea of emotion being a really densely packaged unit of information. It's it's telling you something, right? And in this that kind of scenario, the person isn't quite aware of what I'm what does this mean, but it but it means something and I'm organized a certain way, maybe to be defensive or fearful or you know, there are other times when people have a little bit more awareness of how or why, and that's in scenarios of trauma right? Where there's a history that's of abuse or of being mistreated. I think also, you know, some of the more nebulous things are neglect, right? So you can imagine in terms of 
histories of uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, maltreatment of different kinds. You know, we could talk about when I was a child, for example, right? Or sometimes it's, you know, as an adult, but in a significant relationship, previous marriage or something like that. Neglect tends to be really nebulous, right? It's like particular situation where it's very hard to pin the tail on the donkey. It's hard for the client to know. And part of what has to happen is some exploration of what they're feeling to kind of think about certain scenarios. And then what was the message being sent there? Well, nothing. I mean, they just ignore me. Well, what's the message? You know, and it's the message received by this person, you know, back when there was this injury. But how frustrating it is for us when you know, we want to let it go, but we can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, right. And people will sometimes ruminate quite a lot. Is rumination the same thing as a response to trauma? I mean, is rumination a response to trauma? Well, that that's a good question. I mean, is rumination the same thing? I'll say that rumination doesn't have to be a response to trauma, right? But certainly, people who suffer trauma, rumination is sometimes something they do, right? So you can get different kinds of rumination, right? This will be like the anxious rumination, what if, and and what will I do if this happens, and how do I prevent that from happening? And this is this anxious kind of worry wart sort of way of being. You could also have depressive rumination. This is people who maybe are brooding over the past. You might be kind of have a penchant toward melancholy, the sadness about the past. And, you know, a key thing is this rehearsing or revisiting old wounds, right? You also get angry rumination. And here you have a little bit more of this revenge fantasies or what I should have said or whatever. You know, one of your examples kind of pointed to that, somebody seeing red and so one of the funny things about rumination is we know that's actually really unproductive if your goal is to work through something. And that has to do with the fact that rumination is not the same as emotional processing. It's not a productive way of working with emotion, but it is a way of working with emotion. So it's something people do, but this, this is not really a productive end. It tends to be more of a secondary process. Is that what distinguishes rumination from productive emotional processing how would you know whether you're doing one or the other how would you know if you're ruminating i think i think that's a good question right for um for all of us and i'm just imagining somebody who uh you know is is feeling they're stuck i mean one of the funny things about rumination if you go to anxious rumination but they're all sort of like that is um you tend to be uh spinning around trying to problem solve, right? So the, mm-hmm. the person who's who's always anxiously ruminating is trying to prevent, stave off disaster. And so there's a lot of kind of scenarios, well, this would happen and then I would do that and what if and what if, mm-hmm. you know? So there's a sense of feeling productive on some level. And I think you also get that. I mean, anger is a bit special. We could talk about that in a second, right? Because you also are creating these scenarios, but it actually feels good a little bit. Uh, So anger is quite a funny puzzle because it has some reward to feel like you have the upper hand. And so the fantasies, the rumination fantasies are always of that type, right? Rooting over the past has its own thing. But there are some researchers have done some really interesting work on worry. You know, rumination is kind of like a process that 
is highly verbal. It's highly cognitive. It's you thinking and you coming up with scenarios, but it's always kind of superficial. It's like you're a stone and the stone is skipping on the water. You're not really sinking down into a deeper thing. I mean, the, the convenient thing about rumination is it keeps you busy and prevents you from actually taking a breath and checking what's underneath all that worry or all that sadness or, or all that angry, vengeful thinking, right? And, and there's probably a primary emotion there. It might be adaptive, it might be maladaptive, but it's going to be more painful than the ruminative process. I'm not saying rumination is fun. It's not, right? But it, 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 it keeps you busy, it keeps you feeling kind of productive. It staves off the, the deeper feelings of pain, which might be related to, say, an injury or an abuse or a maltreatment of some kind, right? So, Antonio, are you saying that in order to emotionally process something in, in, to be able to let it go, you have to, you have to feel that pain? Yeah, I think very much. We're going to connect the dots here, right? So people are feeling something and they're upset. And I've said, well, you know, feeling upset in some sort of way is a signal, right? This is a densely packaged unit of information. It's a signal. Emotion is always faster than cognition in the sense of thinking, right? And mm -hmm. so it's a signal that something's going on that needs your attention. Right? When it hurts, something hurts physically, oops, I got to pay attention to my thumb. Oh, I hit it with a hammer. Uh, in this case, I'm in these scenarios. Maybe I'm cued by some person or unfinished business or a characteristic sort of thing, and it touches an old wound. And so first, it's a signal, right? There's some awareness or an orientation. And now what we have to do with that is sort of deepen the experience. What's underneath that? What's really going on, right? So you know, if we're talking emotion-focused theory, the idea is to move to more primary experiences that are underneath these symptoms. Because rumination is really symptomatic anxiety or symptomatic depression or the, the grumpiness um, of, if, if that's somebody's uh, poison, so to speak, right? The second step is often there's something that's deeply affecting us, right? And these might be primary maladaptive emotions. This is where you kind of feel bent out of shape, you feel self-blaming, there's losses that seem, perhaps seem impossible to recover from, or grievances that seem impossible to, to assert against. You know, so, so this, is, this is where self-blame, negative self-treatment, as some researchers have said, becomes the piece that's really painful, right? And then finally, kind of after that, there's there's a working through of those processes, the antidotes to that, which are going to be primary adaptive emotions. So there's a whole sort of sequence. You know, this is central to ideas in emotion-focused therapy, but I, I think when somebody's struggling with something and they don't quite know why, often the starting point is to sort of to deepen and find find some room to, to explore that rather than just trying to make the feeling go away by this verbal kind of cognitive scenario problem solving. As you're describing this, Antonio, the things that a person is going to be doing, kind of working on themselves and working with themselves, whereas often, you know, when there seems to be, if you want a trigger from someone else and it involves someone else, I think often people just feel that they need to talk to that person about it. 
It's a really interesting point, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right that they feel the need to talk to that person, right? I think a real yeah. clincher is sometimes, you know, it's not at the beginning, but people come to the realization that, you know, what do they need, right? That becomes a pivot point, figuring out what you need. I don't mean like you need a cheeseburger or you need it, right? It's like an existential need or an attachment need, which are existential needs, right? Or a need to feel competent. Or here we're talking about other people, right? So maybe it's to feel loved or to feel cared for, seen, right? And one of the tricky parts that come here with this unfinished business with other people, whether it be trauma with a capital T or, or trauma with kind of a small T, is the sense that I, I need that, say, to be recognized or to be loved. I need that from him or I need that from her, right? From that person. I need that person to say, to apologize, right? So that's a real sticky spot. We're not talking about a misunderstanding. We're talking about often a chronic and ongoing wound, right? So it's often that that person is not going to be part of it. So now you're on your own, so to speak, you and the therapist or you and your life. And here's where metabolizing it or processing it, you know, we could choose our metaphors, is going to be uh, a process for the individual, right? So I can actually work through it without talking to the other person, which sometimes has been really unproductive, right? Or, or re-traumatizing. People can be invalidating or dismissive. And if they're perpetrators, then that would be particularly scary or dangerous. But you can do these exercises where you imagine the other person, right? So that could be empty chair work. There are some other ways to do it, although the chair work tends to be quite evocative, right? And an imaginary conversation isn't a rehearsal for some future engagement with that person. Sometimes that person's dead, and sometimes they're not. But in any case, they don't have to be part of the conversation that helps me, say, client, to work through, to say what I need to say, and to unpack the feelings that I have, which here too have been unexplored. So letting it go without involving anyone else. The work is with ourselves. It's not with the other person. The work is with ourselves, absolutely. And I think if we go back to this idea of having an unmet existential need, these, this is what do you need when you feel like that? Mm. Like what? Well, when you feel, you know, in ashamed or fundamentally alone and alienated, disconnected, or, or afraid, terrified, full of horror. What, what do you need, right? And, and the thing is, it would have been nice to have gotten that from so-and-so, right? But it didn't happen and it never will. It didn't happen and it, it probably never will. Mm. And here's mm. the interesting kind of pivot point. It doesn't change what you need as a person. So I actually need that to flourish. It would have been nice if it was from them, but uh, if it's not from them, I still need it. And so now you end up with this kind of change in perspective where the unmet need isn't something that's tied to the significant other who has hurt me and isn't available to reconcile with or, or what's not possible or too dangerous or not healthy, right? But my need is my own and I need this to flourish, right? I need someone to validate me. I need someone to love me. I need to feel witnessed. I need to feel connected. And that other person, you know, it's 
first in chair work. So there are a couple of scenarios where you could do that, right? A, a person in, in chair work could offer that to themselves, yeah. right? Uh, this is like enacting self-compassion. They might realize that actually in some ways those needs are being met now in their current life by other people, right? And, and those people become more important now going forward. Or sometimes it's the therapist, right? The therapist is the one who's your witness or who's, who's able to give you the validation you didn't have, right? So the needs are owned by the individual now, right? I mean, they always were, but the, the individual, the client often saw it as wedded in some ways. I need it from that person, which seems hopeless in many ways, right? Uh, and sometimes it is. But these things can kind of be repaired without changing the historical accuracy of what happened. You know, it turns out that in working through trauma and working through unfinished business, it's an interesting thing, right? What yeah. actually happened is actually <laughs> not so important. What matters is how it felt and what it meant. And there's a lot of latitude there. Yeah. And there's something that's quite comforting and reassuring that it is possible to work through things that are in relation to someone else without them being there. So we're not reliant on them having to repair or make things better for us, that we are able to do that ourselves, maybe with the help of a therapist or someone else that is able to witness that process. Absolutely. Antonio, we could go on and on, but we are relatively short, bite-sized pieces of audio in this podcast. So thank you very much for your time. I hope we can speak again at some point. Sure. Yeah, very exciting. So much to, to think about. And I very much look forward to that book that you've been working on coming out, The Principles of Emotional Change. I'll keep you posted. Thank you. Dr. Antonio Pasqualioni is clinical psychologist and full professor at the University of Windsor in Canada. And if you'd like to find out more about Antonio and his other work and the TED Talk, I'll put a link to the TED Talk on the website. Please go to emotionfocus.com and don't forget to share this podcast with anyone you know that may be interested in emotions. And I think that that is all of us. See you next time. Mm -hmm.